What is crack-a-lackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you with another mailbag. We had a bunch of questions left over from the last mailbag, and I like to get to all of them, so I figured I would do another one. We have some other stuff in the pipeline, but it just felt like a good time. Let me please remind anyone, if this is your first time around or you just haven't checked this out yet, please, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcast. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Um, definitely throw us likes, comments, help us break the algorithm as we continue to try and build the community. I appreciate every single one of you who pitches in and does that. So please continue to do so. And But also, before we cannonball into the mailbag, we do have some, not breaking news, but some interesting news to get to as everything happens in Summer League. And I expect a lot more rumors to come out of that soon, if not actual transactions. Uh, but Windhorse did say, well, he was making an appearance on Get Up ESPN show. We believe that the Indiana Pacers are very close to giving DeAndre Ayton an offer sheet or executing a sign and trade. We could see something with the Pacers and Ayton happen as early as today. I'm chancing recording this the night before because I don't need to cover the Palo uh, Bancaro game since he will not be playing when he goes up against Chet Holmgren's Oklahoma City Thunder. was looking forward to that. Kind of sucks we won't see him play, but Bancaro was absolutely fantastic and killed it during the games that he did appear in. So the Ayton to... Indiana stuff isn't new. I think the fact that it's progressing this quickly might mean that it's no longer going to wait at least conceptually on what's going to happen with Kevin Durant, where a lot of the league still feels in limbo. If it's a sign and trade, um, that transaction can still be folded into the Kevin Durant uh, framework as part of this larger deal. But at the same time, I don't think the Nets actually want Aiton and his base year compensation always made the deal a little bit more difficult, not a ton unless you were involving other teams, they just re-signed Nick Claxton. That organization really, really, really likes Dayron Sharp as well. So they might not see investing in a big man as the smartest course of action. You're also going to run into this issue with other big men like Claxton, like Dayron Sharp. But if you're keeping Ben Simmons, it doesn't make sense to have like an eight in there who there's some touch away from the basket, but it's more so on like hook shots, fadeaways, um, not really like a push shot, like could have a little bit of a mid-range game though. And that's just not enough range to justify investing what will be near max money in Aiton. Uh, so that is the, the the issue there that I don't think an Aiton transaction with Indiana one way or the other, I don't think it portends anything about the, the Kevin Durant sweepstakes necessarily. Uh, and if you're Brooklyn, it just makes more sense. I know people are like, well, Aiton hasn't even turned 24. He'll do so later this month. If you're Brooklyn and you want to compete now, but also kind of keep your flexibility, remain young and have room for growth, Aiton makes sense. Just not alongside Simmons. Uh, not at that price point, anyway. You can approximate a lot of what he's going to give you on defense and offense uh, in a much cheaper fashion, which is clearly how the Suns feel, hence why they haven't signed him. The Pacers, uh, the Pacers-Suns issue, though. So we're expecting something to happen, whether it's a side-and-trade or an outright offer sheet because the, the Pacers officially have the, the cap space to do so. If it does happen, I think it'll probably be via sign and trade for a couple of reasons. Uh, Herb Simon has really always liked to operate this way with uh, his colleagues. We saw it with, I think most recently was the Malcolm Brogdon thing with Milwaukee, where they turned that into a sign and trade where they didn't even necessarily need to. Uh, I think that's, that's fine in this case as well. Uh, and, and including Brogdon, you're hedging your bets against, okay, well, what can we, we don't want to, give this offer sheet to Aiton, a player we really like, and then just have the Suns match it. If you want to ensure that you're going to get that player, then yes, involving the other teams makes sense. 
to me though, if there is like a significant opportunity that the Suns would let Aiton walk, and I don't think that they would. However, I do think there's more variability caked in here than we would expect, just based off everything that's happened since essentially last summer when the extension negotiations began. I just wouldn't like take that to to the bank. Is my point. So. If you think there's like a better than 50% chance the Suns won't match, I don't care about doing right by your colleagues, especially when you're in a market like Indiana. Like you don't need to send anything back. If you don't think they're going to match, just pay Aiton and then you could trade Miles Turner elsewhere. The structure that everyone thinks is going to work is Miles Turner for Aiton. And because India has so much cap space, base your compensation doesn't even matter there. That could be the route that this goes. If they end up giving more than that, maybe it's because they believe that Phoenix was a bigger threat to match. I just don't think... Yeah, I guess it's enviable on the part of Herb Simon to operate in that fashion. But if you truly, and that makes sense, I want to make that clear. It's smart if you think Phoenix or another team dealing with other free agents is going to match. If if they're actually not going to, you're under no obligation to help them out. They have the option of paying their own players. So you don't need to help them out. Um, for the Suns' perspective of this, Indiana seems like the cleanest trade partner. You get someone a Miles Turner. I'm assuming that's what the structure of the deal is going to be. Who's going to help you space the floor? Not as good of a rebounder as DeAndre Ayton. You can't play him as high on the defensive end either. But just having that offensive range, I think DeAndre Ayton is probably the more versatile offensive player at this point. When you look at some of his spins, his fadeaways, his hook shots, we've never really seen Miles Turner get to do that in high volume. I don't know if that's something that he could do well. We know he wants a more expanded offensive role. I don't think he would get one in Phoenix. Um, I think he would be a nice fit. I also think he's... I guess he's not underrated as a defender. People understand how valuable the rim protector he is. I don't think you're losing that much mobility on the perimeter, though, going from Aiton to Miles Turner if you're Phoenix. So I think that's a fine replacement. There would still be a level of uh, an, an uninspiring offseason if you don't get Kevin Durant and this is your biggest move going from uh, Aiton to Turner. And then, look, the question has to be, well, you don't want to pay Aiton around $30 million a year. Miles Turner is making eighteen. That's fine for you in the interim. He's going to be a free agent in 2023. What are you willing to pay him? Or is this going to end up being another rental type situation? Because you can't, like, you have to think of the long-term value here too. DeAndre Ayton is a, a fringe all-star at this point in a role that I guess he hasn't loved, it doesn't seem like, but he's grown to excel at, even if he doesn't consistently play with that thrust is what I've been calling it. There are just games where you don't feel his presence a lot. And those, if you want to be a more prominent part, especially of the the offensive picture, you can't have as many of those games that he tends to have with all that in mind though, uh, if you're Phoenix, you, you need to acquire Turner with the intention of paying him. And I don't know why you'd want to pay miles Turner as opposed to Deandre. And again, I, I don't think the drop off insofar as it exists is even that massive. There are different types of players where I do think that Turner is more of a, a, like a, a shot blocking floor spacer. And that's, that's more of a specialist than what Aiton does is like, I think he's an understated defender, like can actually be sort of the, the backline anchor, but we've also, we've also, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over my words here. We've also never even seen miles Turner uh, in mass without Demonte Sabonis. He covered up a lot, I think for Sabonis during their time in Indy together. So I, I don't think the Pacers are giving away nothing. Even if they didn't pan plan on paying miles Turner, I don't know that this is a no-brainer decision for them. My point is with Phoenix is you can't just acquire, acquire Miles Turner without the intention of have that be the primary part of your return and then have that be like, that's it. Like if you need to acquire him with the intention of paying him unless other stuff is coming back. If I'm Indy, I'm fighting against that because we know that Phoenix probably wants to 
not cut payroll because they're paying more to a center now than they were paying eight. And if they do get Turner, that being said, um, if you have to include like that pick you got from Boston in 2023, and then maybe if I was Phoenix, I would, I love O'Shea Brissett. And I think Indy loves O'Shea Brissett. Um, that dude can defend all over the place. And if he hits his threes, um, continues to hit them at, at a high enough clip, that's just super valuable. And there's some on ball skills there too, but just the defense and then like not compromising any of your offensive geometry, your floor geometry is huge. Well, why would you give up that much if you're Indy, knowing that you could just sign him outright? You really have to believe then that Phoenix is going to match. And I, I don't know that they've sent the message around the league uh, consistently enough or firmly enough that they'll do that. The fact that he hasn't signed one or that another team aside from Indy hasn't tried to give him one, maybe that's part of it. I also have to acknowledge that the big man market is always just sort of of wonky here. So, and, and I know for a fact that DeAndre Ayton really wanted to get to the Spurs and then that, them pivoting away from DeJounte Murray sort of made that just like it was never going to happen. So I get this from the Suns and I get it from the Pacers. DeAndre Ayton, you have all the cap flexibility in the world. We can talk about, should you be paying someone who's um, even though he's only 24, he is a non all-star at the moment, unless you project him to be the guy, does it make sense to do that so early into what feels like a rebuild? Like this is, you're coming off of, half a season, like you're half a season into this rebuild where you, you hit that reboot button. But cap space doesn't go as far in a market like Indy. We romanticize it. They can take on bad contracts with all these picks. Uh, we also, like, that's fine. You could go that route, but I don't think you're under any obligation. And DeAndre Ayton is, is young enough to grow with you. He has not aged himself anywhere near out of, out of a, a full tilt rebuild. And the other thing to consider is just like Indy's books are so flexible moving forward. There's not a bad contract on their ledger right now. There's not, I mean, there's not even a long-term contract on their, their ledger. It's yeah, like right now, Daniel Tice or TJ McConnell, and those salaries aren't guaranteed. Those are the only players who are under contract for more than two more seasons. Like there's no player. Let's phrase it this way. There's no player on Indy's books right now. Who's under guaranteed, who has guaranteed money beyond 23, 24. And so we know that Halliburton's going to be part of of that picture. He's just slated for a strict free agency. They'll probably extend him. My point is you're not compromising anything by paying Aiden that if it doesn't work out, or let's just say he doesn't provide the necessary bang for your buck. That is your one overpaid player as of right now. So if you're looking at it through that lens, it also doesn't matter. The question really is, do you believe that he makes sense as sort of an anchor for the future? Because what I do think you give up here is yes, you have your, um, you have your high draft pick coming out of this year. You also have uh, Chris Duarte already on the uh, on the roster. You have O'Shea Brissett, like I said. So you you can view yourself as more in the advanced stages. Uh, and I also don't know why I called uh, Benedict just the the pick from this year. So you you have him who just looks like he's going to be infinitely scalable in the NBA. You can sort of make the move to be like, All right, well, we just need to advance this. Halliburton's already really good. We have players who can make an impact and the Pacers have never operated on this, you know, full scale teardown mode. This is really the closest that they've come in my memory, what they did this past season, making that sort of partial year tank. So I get that. But do you think that DeAndre Ayton is the guy in the situation that's going to accelerate this process? I, I honestly don't know. I think um, this is probably Caitlin Cooper phrased this, I believe on Twitter and, it on the head this feels like a vote of confidence in Tyrese Halliburton more than anyone saying that he's just ready now can run the show now you want a, a superior an elite pick and roll partner for him now uh, and I, I think that's that's totally fine to agree with you're not going to get that in Miles Turner has like one element to his pick and roll game and it's it's really picking and popping DeAndre Ayton has like a 
a little bit of pop, but not so much. He's just a harder roller, has more of a variable touch around the basket. I love what the pick and roll duo between Halliburton and Aiton could do there. Uh, and then if you're surrounding those two with enough shooting, that could be super, super dangerous. And you're also, again, I don't think you drop off a ton defensively going from Aiton to Turner. I think if I had to push, I, I might call Aiton the more versatile defender and Turner could technically be the more impactful one, if that just makes any sense to, to anybody. But I, I'm I'm still curious as to like, what else is there to explore with DeAndre Aiton? And we saw for a stretch him going about his offensive business with without Chris, Chris Paul. There are some doubts to me in his, I have some doubts, excuse me, about his self-creation game. Again, I don't think we've seen it in a high enough volume for me to render this verdict. Uh, but I, like, is there going to be more aggression when we're talking about facing up and attacking guys there? Can he go up with more force when he is attacking at points? Um, that consistency needs to be put together. And it's, it also just gets a little bit harder when you're not playing with a Devin Booker and a Chris Paul at the same time. Most of his court time was spent as almost the, the third option for the Suns. And when you're also reliant on other people to set you up a ton, if you increase the self-creation, you're just going to become a more prominent focal point of the defense by default. I don't think it's an un I don't think it's an undefensible or an inexplicable gamble by the Pacers. I do think it's a little bit of a gamble. You really have to believe that there is a lot more to plumb from Aiton on the offensive end. At the same time, if you just believe and I thought Halliburton uh really shined when you're looking at his ISO game or his agency over Indy's offense when he came over there. I thought he showed even more than he did in Sacramento in large part because he was just given the freedom to do so. So if you already view him as the guy, you don't need Aiton to ever be the guy. I think at this point you're looking at him to um, it's either him or, uh, or Chris Duarte. When you're looking at the players on the roster right now, you'd like them to anchor the Tyrese Halliburton list units. Um, I don't know. Chris Duarte to me would have a better chance, his offensive package of doing so than than with Aiton. I get the interest though. Um, it would just be a very intriguing gamble. And I would still call it a gamble to make when you're, when you're so early into this process, it just, he's so young and already so good. And Tyrese Halliburton, I think the more important thing here is already just amazing that it, maybe it just makes a, a ton of sense from that perspective. And you're looking at a deal that's probably, even if it's three plus one, um, it's going to, it can't be longer than four years. And again, just looking at how early you are into this uh, project, by the time that, to phrase it this way, by the time that Tyrese Halliburton's on his next contract, DeAndre Ayton is going to be half over. And so like there is that light at the end of the tunnel uh, argument to be made, even if things don't pan out. I'm just, I'm very, this feels like a very aggressive and decisive move by the Pacers. And I'm going to be fascinated by how the partnership, if this goes through, turns out with Halliburton and what other moves are left there for them. I think you also probably need to make sure that you're pairing him with Aiton specifically with guys who can shoot at the four. That's not a problem with what Jalen Smith did last year. I do view him as more of a five defensively, but offensively, like he can do the things of a four, even if you're just counting on him for, for stationary shooting. And you can also just go with lineups where, Maybe they're a little bit smaller, but if you have Duarte, Heald, and Halliburton on the court, you're ensuring yourself of three shooters at all times. And even Brissett, we've seen be able to downsize, so maybe that's a potential lineup. Having a true five on the floor helps you do those things. I really hope we don't see any Gogo Batadze, DeAndre, eight minutes if if that happens. I don't think we would see Isaiah Jackson eight minutes either, uh, but it's it's for a Pacers team. It is a I would say it's in a move that the level of aggression to go after eight now and to actually make it a sign and trade rather than just get him outright. If it's an entirely, it's not an entirely different story, but it would be a lot different to me 
if you were just signing him and then maybe you're trading Turner elsewhere. Maybe you're, I mean, dual bigs are in vogue. We actually have a question on that in a second. Uh, maybe you try playing them together because of the way that Miles Turner shoots, I'd be intrigued to see that. Um, but it does feel like they're more, if you want to ensure that Phoenix isn't going to match, I would still feel differently or like this move a lot better if you had the option of moving Miles Turner elsewhere or even just keeping him to maximize your asset plays. It just feels a tinge too aggressive for me, given the stage at which the Pacers are at. But I also acknowledge just knowing, I don't know what else I really want them to do. It's the only, the alternative would be letting this core marinate, essentially maybe trading Turner and Heald, seeing what you could get for them, letting them marinate uh, as expected or marinate or more organically without immediate reinforcement. And then you're prioritizing a high 2023 pick before you go and make moves like this. There's uh, that could be the right way, but also this isn't necessarily the wrong way. Aiton is Aiton is so young. So those are my thoughts there at this point. It does feel like Aiton is going to end up in Indiana or Phoenix. If the fact that Wendy mentioned the potential for an offer sheet, um, I think if you see the Pacers do that, you really know that they don't expect Phoenix to match, or maybe they're just, they were getting fed up and tired of waiting uh, for Phoenix to figure out what they were doing with Kevin Durant. And perhaps they're trying to lock them into to something that would make their transactions a little bit more difficult, or they would just have to float Aiton for um, until he's trade eligible around uh, December, January, depending on what date is fixed in there. They don't tend to operate that way, which is why if they did throw an offer sheet out there rather than make this a sign and trade, I'm not sure if it would be more of a harbinger of frustration with the Suns, or that they really believe Phoenix won't match. And I'll say this, I don't expect this to be the case, but if the Suns just let Aiton walk, if this is not a sign and trade, if they decide not to match, that is franchise malpractice of the highest order. And I don't know who would be more responsible, whether it's a James Jones or a Robert Sarver thing. I know the relationship between Aiton and Monty Williams and CP3 supposed to be too far gone. You cannot let a fringe star at the entering his age 24 season just leave for nothing. And that's why I don't expect it to be a possibility. I want to make that clear. But since it's technically a possible outcome of all this, would be an absolute unmitigated disaster on the Suns' behalf. And, and they would need to be vilified should that happen. Again, I don't expect it to. That's my thought on Aiton to the Suns, though. Um, just a situation we'll be monitoring. And I imagine there's, there's some fireworks left as it pertains to this. Let's move on to the mailbag, though. This first question comes from, I skipped it. Uh, he was the first one to ask a question, so I feel bad, in Discord. And I ended up glossing over it in the last mailbag. But you're the first question of the part two of it. So how's that? Comes from Herb Jones and Joyer. I don't know when you're doing a next mailbag, Dan, but what the fuck are the Mavs doing running out the worst version of Cat Gobert with Wood McGee? Yeah, I look, I'm not, I can't argue with that. M McGee, Javal signed in Dallas. I don't understand. The deal was cheaper. Uh, and also, shout out to Mavs CBA for Mavs Moneyball, who pointed this out uh, at the time that he believed that the deal was misreported because the Mavs were probably going to use part of their mini MLE to sign Jaden Hardy. And that's exactly what they did. So the JaVale McGee deal is more like three years, $17.2 I still don't understand why they had to pay that much for JaVale McGee. I don't know why he was among their quickest targets when you already had Christian Wood, Dwight Powell, Maxi Kleba on this roster. And I don't know why you had to give him a player option. Like that couldn't have been a deep option on the third year. Um, so, and maybe it's one of those situations where the deal was already made and then they went and traded for Christian Wood. They didn't think they were going to have him. I'm not saying teams would negotiate with players before the start of free agency. I'm never, ever saying that. Just still curious. Yeah, I don't like the Mavs front court if they are planning on playing Wood and McGee together a ton. Wood can be technically a four on offense, but you lose a lot of the appeal 
of his offensive game, even his floor game, if you're stashing him at the four rather than the five. I know there's a defensive trade-off of that, but it would make more sense to pair him with Maxi Kleba in my book than JaVale McGee. And you're not, I'm assuming you're not bringing Christian Wood off the bench. That's probably a, a recipe to aggravate him. But JaVale McGee did say that he expects to be the, the starting center in Dallas, which is just weird. I will say there's plenty of offseason left. We could still see moves from the Mavs at this point. Luca also gave an interview with a uh, Spanish outlet, I believe. And he had said that he, this was, um, I had read the, the translated version. So I hope I'm not, um, I hope that I'm not misinterpreting anything that was that was said or reading something that was a, a misinterpretation of, of what Luca said, but that he had essentially told the reporter, I I hope that the Mavs aren't done with their signings. And I'm, I'm assuming he's alluding to the fact that, oh shit, we let Jalen Brunson go for, for nothing at this point. No one expects that to be a sign of trade, by the way. So you are now in this position where you lost your second best player without replacing him. I know they have Spencer Dinwiddie, but Jalen Brunson was Dallas's second best player last year. And he just, he just left. Like that's a, that's a biggie. So I, I don't, I think that there needs to be another move from Dallas here in general. And maybe that opens up the front court rotation a little bit. Uh, Davis Bertans, not a net asset, but his salary could be an interesting matching tool. He's owed 16 million next year, 17 million in 23, 24. And then he is, has an ETO for 16 million on that third year. He will pick it up. So he Davis Bertans is essentially on the books for, three years and like 50 million bucks at this point. Um, maybe teams would take that on again, if they like the idea of shooting, like I said, Dwight Powell is an expiring contract. You could also look at moving Christian Wood again, if you really wanted to don't, you can't move Maxi Klee, but that's just, that's not allowed. He's too valuable to what they do. I proposed a trade for Dallas where they're sending out Tim Hardaway, Jr. Josh green, who I think he flashed some defensive. He's not clearly not worth the draft equity. They expended on him, but Josh Green had some really nice defensive moments for Dallas, almost all predicated on his physical tools this past year, but that's something. Josh Green, Tim Hardaway Jr., Dwight Powell, and a 2025 first with top one protection, send that to Utah for Malik Beasley, who cannot be aggregated until September 6th for all the the, uh, CBA nerds out there like myself, and then Mike Conley. I think people are too down on Mike Conley, and I also think that maybe the initial reaction here from Jazz fans, especially I know we have a ton that – listen and watch this podcast might think Utah's not getting enough. And with trader Danny at the helm, I'm, I'm here to tell you that you're, you're probably not wrong that that's how they, uh, how they feel. I do think the structure is ultimately fair because Mike Conley, people are, are semi too low on him based on how the postseason ended. He's also 34 years old. He will turn 35, I believe before next season. And so you're paying him 20 plus million in the upcoming year. Then he's guaranteed 14.3 million out of the 22.7 million in 23, 24, I don't think his contract is necessarily a net plus. And so to take on the three seasons left of Tim Hardaway's deal, 53.7 or two years. And let's call it because I would assume that they're going to guarantee that two years and 43 million of Mike Conley. There's not like 45 million, excuse me, of Mike Conley. There's not like this huge, there's not a huge difference there to me. And I think Conley does more for the Mavs who could use another offensive steward with Jalen Brunson gone. And he plays well off the ball, shoots well from three, has a little bit of an, an off the dribble and in between game. Uh, and he's a, I, I think he's probably a better passer than Jalen Brunson at this stage. Jalen Brunson is definitely more electric when he gets into the lane, looking at his footwork and he's younger. Why wouldn't you think that? I don't think you're losing anything defensively. You might even be gaining um, something defensively there. Uh, that might overstate how much, understate how much Jalen Brunson's improved, though, and also understate how old. Mike Conley actually is. 
And then Malik Beasley is sort of just like a different version of Tim Hardaway Jr. He has more pop. If you're the Mavericks, though, you're giving up this first round pick because you want to see him. Um, you want to have the option of getting rid of him. He has a team option in, in the summer of 2023. Keep your books more flexible than possible. Is that worth giving up a 2025 first round pick for? I would probably do this if I was Dallas, the Josh Green and the uh, Josh Green and the 2025 pick essentially to get Conley and Beasley here. The time for Doncic to win is now. And I don't know that any of your biggest splashes are coming or that your splash on the trademark will be much bigger than this based off how limited you are in the assets that you can give up. And for Utah, I think they need wings and Josh Green qualifies just given their criteria. You open up the backcourt rotation even a little bit more by getting rid of Conley, uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. Beasley might be a little bit of a wash. Tim Hardaway Jr. might be a little bit more wingish on offense. I think you could argue Beasley's a little bit more wingish on, on defense, looking at his physical tools. But you're getting first-round equity uh, and a flyer on jo Josh Green. They, to me, they would be the party that's more likely to say no, but maybe you can include seconds to make that work. Moral of the story being, I don't necessarily know what Dallas is doing. I do not. If they're planning on you know going dual big here, I don't love it. At the same time, like Christian Wood on offense does allow you to play him with JaVale McGee or even Dwight Powell there. Also, Powell would be in sort of this underrated acquisition for Utah because they still kind of need a starting center, whether you want Jared Vanderbilt playing the five and his expiring contract just a sort of a stopgap there. But yeah, the Mavs, I, I'm not in love with their front court rotation or their offseason. I think, I think they've had a rough go of it. And I would say when you're looking at some of the dual big setups that we could see next year, theirs might be sort of the least impressive of the bunch. You're certainly having this higher ceiling on Cat and Gobert. You could also argue though, like the the cost of entry for a Wood-McGee pairing, if that's what they're looking at. I won't uh, discount Dwight Powell being in the equation of maybe jumping McGee. You're not playing Powell and McGee together. That would just be absolutely atrocious. I just like the idea of having, being able to play Dorian Finney-Smith at the four um, and and having minutes for Kleba still available at the five or playing Kleba with Wood more. Uh, than, than having McGee play with Wood. And you could still run out all those lineup variations just because it's the starting lineup doesn't mean they're beholden to it forever. Still, just not not impressed by it, though. And maybe they'll just try some funky things in the front court there. I just I also don't think, maybe why I can't really give a passion take on this, is I don't think that they're done this offseason is sort of where I'm at. Or maybe I'm just wishfully hoping that they're not done. Drew and Drew asks, which fans deserve a title the most? And why is it those poor Knicks fans? We had people chiming in the Discord saying it's actually Kings fans. Uh, Kings fans deserve at least a playoff berth with their drought. They are a loyal, intelligible fan base, and that franchise continues to not do right by them, even if the Keegan Murray pick looks a lot better. And like I said on that podcast, I can't you 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 doubt the pick because it's the Kings that made it, which is fair. But Keegan Murray is a, is a really good player. And based off what I've seen from him in summer league, there might be some more on ball juice there to explore than I thought. And how he holds up on defense will be sort of a barometer for how valuable he becomes, but he could wind up being just one of the, maybe not the most elite players in the NBA, but just someone that is consistently incredibly valuable at the highest level to really good teams throughout his career. And so that doesn't, Jan, um, Jay and Ivy could become a megastar better than De'Aaron Fox, better than Sabonis. And that'll make the Kings look bad. I don't think that pick was necessarily the wrong one. The Kings made it. And so they're, they are subject to doubt. And I do think that is warranted, but the Kings are definitely in there. The Knicks are in there. There are so many fan bases that deserve it. I think it would be cool just, and I'm saying these two teams specifically, and I'll, I'll throw even 
I'll throw OKC, Memphis, and New Orleans into here because it constantly feels like right now, and it's because of the the ten pole stars they have in place that people are sort of slobbering over their their stars and when they're going to leave. There, we don't like we know Zion just signed his extension. Ja just signed his extension without a player option, by the way. That's huge. But like Shea Gilgeous Alexander signed his extension, it was still like a waiting game of oh, when's OKC? going to trade him it feels like and maybe because the way that the past okc core was dismantled these three teams have become like been viewed as this minor league for the bigger more glamorous markets and they're not just this talent farm for the for for these better teams i would like to see them get even the same benefit of the doubt or time or consideration that atlanta gets when looking at no we're not waiting for trey young to leave uh, and we even see it with the Pacers. It's not like, oh, when's someone going to come and poach Tyrese Halliburton? Or when was someone going to come and poach Domas Sabonis? So th- I feel like those fan bases, and you could have thrown Milwaukee into here with Giannis, but he already won his title. They're they're subject to some of the most like other teams, like the vulture circling from other teams. They feel like they're uh, th- that they're at that level. I think even more so than a Minnesota I think you can throw Orlando into here, but they also haven't had a player until maybe now with Paolo Bancaro, who sort of falls into this camp. I think any fan base, though, like in, in, in an unheralded market, it would be cool to see them win a title. Yes, you could rank it. Do I think Orlando fans might deserve it more than the, the Pistons fans who've at least seen one in more recent memory, this millennia specifically? Sure, absolutely. Uh, but like, I don't like getting into it. I, would, I will say, though, that with OKC the New Orleans Pelicans, and then the Memphis Grizzlies, maybe because some of those players like Shea and Zion and Ja are such high profile, it does feel like they are getting the brunt of this consideration when it comes to outlets, national media members, or just other teams' fan bases. I know Lakers fans, they'll just Photoshop. And look, kudos to them for the brazenness. I, I honestly don't care, but they'll just Photoshop anyone that they like into a Lakers jersey. And we saw, look, we saw it with the Raptors fans were kind of just circling Shea Gilgis Alexander before he signed his extension because he is from Canada. So I, I feel for those fan bases a lot. And it would be cool. Even like, it feels like even a Houston who's very early into the rebuild, like they're being given more consideration. It's not like, Oh, and I know Jabari Smith didn't have a great summer league so far, but it's not like, Oh, we're trying to let's Photoshop Jalen green into a Knicks jersey or something. And so I feel for the fan bases that get, more of that that like even Charlotte, I guess Charlotte probably belongs here because everyone there's like this sentiment that LaMelo ball will eventually leave. I also have an issue and this would exclude, like, I'm not going to feel bad. Not that I don't feel bad for Kings fans, but I, I just, my empathy for the Hornets when they've been such a, an also ran run organization, like the way they just think is uninspiring there and ditto with the Kings. It feels like there'd be a path to actually keeping LaMelo Ball in Charlotte if you were able to competently go about building building your roster, even hiring a coach. We'll see how that pans out there. But I don't, I don't like it when – and this is someone who loves transactions. I, I love so much about the NBA. Um, I, I'm speaking of slobbering. I guess that's what I'm doing at this point. That being said, I really do – I understand how the sausage is made and, and also how the transaction game works. But I hate the idea of like – as soon as these guys now are so young and they haven't even started their rookie extensions that it's already, Oh, will they leave? Uh, they haven't even signed their second contract. And now Morant and Zion and Che all have, but those three teams feel like they get it more than most. I don't want to see Charlotte be subjected to it at all. I think Phoenix and Minnesota were kind of in that boat, but then like things got good for Carl Anthony Towns clearly wanted to be there. Devin Booker. Why would he ever leave Phoenix after what happened? I also think Phoenix was never in the same boat as anyone. If they ever looked like they were going to have, 
a competent infrastructure, players would want to go there in the Phoenix market. And we saw that. And then having Devin Booker has helped infinitely with Chris Paul and now in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes. So those are the other three teams for sure. I, you could throw Orlando in, in there as well, but it's, I want every, I love every single person's team until I do my uh, annual tradition where I write about why your team won't re win the championship this year. And th then I hate your team um, just as a fair warning to everybody. I probably went longer on that question than, than needed to be, but Demos Cole asks, who would you have as a more probable breakout candidate for next season? Patrick Williams or Deandre Hunter, who is your most unlikely breakout candidate of the year? So let's start with Patrick Williams versus Deandre Hunter here. I feel like I haven't seen enough of Patrick Williams to understand what he might be on offense. And there, there could be more higher end outcomes for Deandre Hunter on offense before he was injured in 2020, 2021. He showed like an in-between game, some off the dribble work, but then this year he's healthier for longer and kind of, I don't want to say recedes, but is like, doesn't make a ton of progress. And then I go look at Patrick Williams. He is younger. Uh, he probably has more positional scalability on defense and he shot the three ball so well, granted on minimal volume. And I've, you've seen like a little bit, it feels like it's happening in slow motion or at a processing speed that needs to be kicked up a notch when he like attacks sort of open space. I'd love to see more of that. Are either of these guys, someone you could hand the ball to when they have court things are slowed down saying, go get a bucket. I don't know. I would say I would lean no for both of them. But Patrick Williams feels more like the mystery box here, which gives him a higher end outcome. I do think I like him better on defense officially. officially. And given the, the rate at which he's hit his threes, if he can stay healthy and, and looking at how much the, not that the, the Hawks don't need DeAndre Hunter, but just looking how it feels like there's more room for Williams to grow within the, the setup of the Bulls. Like, are they going to try playing him as a small ball five? Are they going to use him specifically at the three and three and the four? Um, now you have DeJounte Murray in Atlanta to go with Trey Young. There actually might be more touches available for Patrick Williams in Chicago because they have Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan, but Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, even Vooch, those guys are more, more ball movers. What's going to happen in Atlanta with John Collins? That might say a lot about DeAndre Hunter's role. So I, I think I like, um, I think I really like Patrick Williams more than DeAndre Hunter, but those are two just to, to sort of really watch. And who's my most unlikely breakout candidate. I don't know whether to approach this as like, who do I not think is going to break out, but could, I, and I don't even know if I could answer that question because the, or that uh, answer it in that way, because it, it wouldn't really make sense or just someone who people aren't talking about as a breakout candidate. I don't mean to go full Homer here, but Quentin Grimes in New York, where they just really need to load up on wings that can play, play both ends of the ball, especially if you're going to have Jalen Brunson uh, running your offense and if you ever deign to play Jalen Brunson with Derek Rose or Emmanuel quickly, I, I look at Grimes and even hinting at some of it in summer league, there's more like off the dribble creation there than I thought. And I always viewed him as a little too small to be considered a true wing. The defense he kind of showed both on and off the ball as a rookie, some of the plays we've even seen in, in summer league, plus the relative reliability of his three point shot. It would not surprise me if we look back on this as him having like, the type of season where he's he vaults into like, oh, this could be like the premier three and D weapon spectrum. Maybe there's a little bit more to to explore there as well. I don't think the touches are going to be there for him on offense with the Knicks uh, to really discover or become like this offensive revelation, but he is someone to watch. I also don't know if this will qualify 
but he came on so late in the last year and he's doing some things in the summer league. Now keep an eye on Trey Murphy, the third in new Orleans, that, that is a, that is a bad MF -er. Uh, he is someone who's going to be ridiculously good. Uh, his defensive range is just incredible. Such a disruptor without it feeling like he's ever taking any chances. And he's not sort of this ubiquitous eclipse or blanket that Herb Jones is, but he like, he can lock down and the, the malleability he gives you when you look at the, like the scale of his assignments, whether it's, do you really need to go on this, this primary ball handler, or do you need to go on a bigger wing? Um, do we need you on like sort of a third option so that you can take, I just said, I don't I feel like he doesn't necessarily take risks, but he's take risks. Uh, I'm trying to talk slower because we have reviews that I talk too fast and also making fun of my, I guess I'm too emo has been something that's been said in the comments as well. Honestly, don't care, but I am trying to talk slower and now I'm tripping over my words as I try and do that. Um, as someone that you might need to be like a, I don't want to call it a free safety, but he can do that stuff. And there's just such a, a comprehension to the way he defends, I guess, uh, where maybe you're not always noticing it, but he could be that guy. If he's going to play consistently in New Orleans this year, and I would expect his minutes to get ratcheted up, um, knowing how important that defense is going to be when you're playing Zion Williamson too. Uh, so having him and, and Herb Jones on the court at the same time, that's someone I think we look at where maybe the, the trajectory of his career changes because uh, just like I said, maybe people weren't watching a ton of New Orleans last year, but he also came on so late. Uh, and then I'll throw one more out here. Again, I don't know how unlikely this is. I would just keep my eye on Josh Primo. Uh, I'm upset that it seems like his summer league is done because he's in health and safety protocols. I talked about this in the last podcast, but when we did that, we did specifically on the Spurs, there's like a real unpredictable shiftiness to his game and an acceleration when he's in the half court or in the open floor. And I think this is someone who can eventually be the primary table setter and decision maker for an offense. The jury for me is still out on his scoring. Like we've seen him hit some nice off the dribble looks and I, he'll eventually be able just to, if he's away from the ball or dribble into sort of those slower dribble threes, can he be someone who's, doing that at a at a at a heightened pace where i think what the spurs need more than anything right now is this higher end really quick off the dribble shot maker i think that josh primo was their best bet at getting that on the roster right now it's him or it could be malachi branham depending on how how much he actually plays uh, i don't know enough about jeremy Sohn just yet to, that doesn't seem to be his type of game i would argue that it's josh primo there there is a non-zero chance if not fairly likely scenario in which Josh Primo right now is the most important player on the Spurs, just because knowing what they need, maybe not that tent pole building block, but the, the person who also runs their offense, but can be the, um, the sun around which everything else revolves. Uh, there's a chance that he can be that guy. And I'm, I'm hoping that they really, he played some higher stakes moments towards the end of last year. I'm hoping they really just cut him loose this year. And, and we see him play, a crap ton. So those are my three. I don't know if they're unlikely enough for, for anyone, but uh, that that's where I think anyone on the Knicks might catch people off, off guard uh, still knowing that they're kind of skewing like towards win now, but I'm um, Patrick Williams over Deandre Hunter right now. Uh, I would also like, can we keep our eye on Yeko Kongu? I don't know how much playing time he's going to get. And Jalen Johnson, those are just two players I really like in Atlanta and their playing time could vary depending on how like the rest of the, the transaction games stand out, but I have high hopes for both of those dudes. So I would loop them in there, but Patrick Williams over Deandre Hunter honorable mentions when looking at breakout candidates to 
Onyeka Kongu or Jalen Johnson in Atlanta, assuming that the opportunity could be there for them. And then Quentin Grimes in New York, Trey Murphy III in New Orleans, and Josh Primo in San Antonio. I feel like based off what we've seen in summer league, I'm going to throw Isaiah Livers here too as well for Detroit. Uh, that would definitely qualify as unlikely. He looks absolutely fantastic. And then even for Golden State, this is going to fall under the, the likely scenario of course but just keep an eye on on all their youngsters like so just keep like moses moody uh the one of the plays that i saw where jonathan kaminga basically ran the pick and roll with james wiseman uh, that had to be giving like golden state warriors fans they had a climax watching that because like you're just watching what could be the future unfold before your very eyes and yet you just won a title uh so keep an eye on the warriors kids just if if only to see how much of a role some of them play next year and it's it's amazing that jordan Poole is part of that sort of kid umbrella uh glad had asked people are always going to wreck the tables for passing on steph curry twice does curry really become curry if he goes to the wolves which could really just be a stem of how many slash which players do you honestly think could overcome the environment they were drafted to versus the players that became as great as they are because of where they were drafted to this is funny because i saw um Someone from King's Twitter, a Professor Oak on Twitter, tweeting about how when Michael Malone was there before they fired him, Ben McElmore looked on the verge of a breakout season. And then once Michael Malone left, his career sort of derailed from there. This is all to say that got me thinking about the same question, which was asked before that. This is all to say, I think environment matters a great deal. Uh, I think, I don't know how to phrase this to not make Knicks fans mad. I think if RJ Barrett was on a different team, that it empowered him more and prioritized his offensive development more, that we might be talking about him in uh, the same terms as at least a tier just below the John Morant, Zion Williamson hype. I, those two have ascended so much, I don't ever want to put him in that camp. But that matters a ton. And I don't think the Knicks have done a bad job developing R.J. Barrett. The opportunity immediately matters. But there's also organizational track record. What would De'Aaron Fox have be in Sacramento? Right now, would there be less of a roller coasterness to his season? He's a fringe all star, if not actual all star at his peak. Uh, but you put him on a different team, better infrastructure, more consistency or stability around him. I th I think that shit matters a bunch. So it, it's the opportunity, but then also the type of opera, the quality of that opportunity. Uh, so when you even have intriguing youngsters that you could see, and New York's a good case study, like why won't they play Obi Toppin and Julius Randle more at the same time? Why does there seem to, seem to be like this rope? Um, too often on a manual quickly. Uh, so with Curry though, I do think teams, uh, certain players are so transcendent that you could have put them anywhere and they were just a broken out had they been healthy enough. Um, so do I think that Curry would be Curry in Minnesota? Yes. But would he be see, receive the same level of attention or consideration because would Minnesota be the continuous contender that golden state has become? And Look, there's a, a shit ton of luck uh, that needs that went into where Golden State is right now. Um, you know, getting to Clay Thompson, the whole tank thing for Harrison Barnes, the cap jump with Kevin Durant. But there was a time where people thought Curry was sort of a bust. He was almost traded instead of Monta Ellis in the Andrew Bogut deal. So, but he's also here because the Warriors have been so good, and there are limitations to even how far he can carry a team, even if he is the best player on one of the the greatest dynasties in in NBA history. So do I think he would have the same top 10 of all time consensus if he was in Minnesota? Probably not because there were a perfect storm of circumstances and good luck here. Do I think if Kawhi had ended up with the Pacers, he still would have ended up becoming a superstar? 
I do. I think that there's a level of talent that's just going to eventually win out. I'm not a big system player guy. And even with Curry, it's very clear that he is the, as the kids say, he's the system player. Uh, I'm sorry. That was, that was really awful. But um, so yes, I, I don't, I think Curry would be Curry on a much smaller scale though. And that's what a lot of this is. There's also like, would he have been traded by now? That's when people, Knicks fans say, imagine he went to the Knicks. Do we know that the Knicks wouldn't have traded him like to get Carmelo Anthony at one point because his career had started off so slowly? And he was impressive when he was healthy, but there were those huge health concerns. Look at that first contract he signed, which also empowered what the Warriors became because he went, he was on the biggest deal of a contract in NBA history. There's never been a better deal than that. Just looking at the length of it. So um, that's like, you know, that's something that can't be replicated at the same time. Curry is so good. I, there are just certain players where you can't say, Oh, just because they were on it to me that they're on a different team. They would have turned out differently or worse. I guess I just like, who are you going to, here's a good one. Like would Duncan Robinson be as good on another team as he was in Miami. That might be a really poor comparison because he was out of Miami's rotation by the end of last season. So let's use would Max Struess or Gabe Vincent be as good on another team as they were in Miami. Uh, that I would say no. That level of player, I think, is where you get into the discussion. Maybe a little bit higher than that, of course. Uh, overall, the, like a you know a Bruce Brown, is he going to be as as good in Denver as he was in Brooklyn? I think he will be. But that's like sort of the debate that you can have. And maybe Gary Payton II going to Portland uh, with Steph Curry specifically. I think he absolutely would have been a megastar, probably on a smaller scale though, because I can't forecast the type of success uh, for Minnesota on the margins around Curry that Golden State had and a lot of that even if you don't want to credit Golden State which is pure dumb luck like finding Draymond yeah okay credit to their scouting that he dropped in the second round but how many teams ended up passing on him you needed them to pass on him to wind up with Draymond Green you also needed the David Lee injury to sort of pave the way for Draymond Green so fantastic question by the way glad you've asked uh you everyone always has really good questions but your past two have been absolutely fantastic Darkwing Duck asks listening to the YouTube exclusive and makes me think may think of this question should the stepian role be removed or at least reworked or reimagined he's talking about uh the rumor where the nets apparently asked for anthony edwards calling the towns and four firsts uh in exchange for kevin durant i don't know where i land on this and we had a mini discussion about it in discord i do think that the stepian rule winds up saving certain teams from themselves i just the idea of like certain organizations being able to trade out like infinite first round picks into the distance. Even if you're saying that um, they can't be traded in back-to-back -back years. Um, if you're going to keep the seven year window and allow for back-to-back, -back, like you could just trade your pick irregardless. I guess that's something to consider. And the reason you consider it, and I'm assuming this might be what um, incited uh, Darkwing Ducks question here in the first place. The transaction game has changed where players aren't leaving in for agency anymore. You are drafting them or you're trading for them. And I think that's why a team like Minnesota, knowing that it needed to draft or trade, went all in on Gobert because they were already too good to be in a spot in the draft where they would have acquired the type of player that they were looking for. So it's I don't have the right answer. Maybe you just extend out the window to eight or nine years and still keep the, the crux of the Stepien rule in place. Maybe it's you don't, if it's another team's first round pick, like you can trade it regardless or what's wrong with your pick commitments. Like if you've already sort of set it up, uh, I don't even like that solution. I wouldn't get rid of the stepping rule altogether. We'd have to keep the, I think we'd have to keep the finite window there then like maybe even shrink it and say, do you want to have the option of going the seven years out or it's now it's five, but you 
can trade. You could just keep trading first round picks back to back to back if you want to do it that way. Um, that would probably be the extent to which I would consider removing it just because there are going to be certain organizations that move those picks in the wrong trades. And I won't even shout any of them out. I just, there are going to be teams that continuously try and undo bad mistakes um, or they're just going to keep making bad mistake after bad mistake because they're addicted to, to mediocrity. And so I do think the stepping rule is necessary. That being said, even that sentiment rings a little hollow because of the way that swaps work. Like those are the way sort of around it. You ensure that team um, doesn't, uh, like doesn't have control over their first round pick, but still has a first round pick. And then even so it's like, you can trade that pick, agree to trade it basically on draft night. So, and you can move them later immediately after as a, a salary. So I don't know how much it's actually preventing, but the fact that, you know, we can say that, then maybe it is working. There's still so much room to operate within it that they're not these strictures. The only actual strictures feel like this is okay. This is only seven years out. And if you're going to go even further out, I'm definitely not going more than a decade because you can't afford to have teams just fuck themselves over for like all of eternity. And some teams are fucked that way anyway, because they're just going to continuously, uh, you know, self-sabotage inadvertently or not. But I, I might consider reworking it. And because of the way the transaction game is right now, I'd be open to the, okay, it's a smaller window, but we don't need to do the swap business. Like you can trade away more of your, your picks. I also wonder though, if the transaction game in general changes in the next CBA, um, the next CBA negotiations with with sort of the trade demands spearheading this and the way that uh, free agent the the context of what free agency has become and then with the tampering this is all going to be so so incredibly fascinating and the Durant trade demand with four years left on his deal only adds to that intrigue. Uh, this next question came live, so you're gonna have to for, forgive me um, if it, if it feels too off the cuff. But uh, Haitian Mamba asks. Jabari Smith versus Evan Mobley, who has the higher defensive and offensive upside? Whew, you are a lot higher on Jabari Smith Jr., sir, than, than I am. Uh, I think Evan Mobley has the higher ceiling on both ends. Um, definitely defense. He is everywhere, everywhere on defense. And the things he allows you to do, he could defend point guards full-time. And I don't know if Jabari Smith Jr. can do that. Maybe you trust Jabari Smith Jr. actually be your primary five more than Evan Mobley. I still can't get there. That's just a function of... Jared Allen's in Cleveland, so we haven't had to see him play that role in volume or adjust to it. Um, offensively, the ball handling skills with Jabari Smith Jr., the way that I could envision him hitting um, these off-the-dribble looks at a higher, um, not just clip, but sort of a, a higher velocity, like the being able to rise and fire so quickly or, or hitting them on more of a dime. I think you make a case that just by, by virtue of, of him having that ceiling, uh, he could he should be better than Mobley, but the passing from Mobley I feel like is going to exceed that of Jabari. And I've only seen what I've I've seen of Jabari a little bit of college footage after the college season ended, and then also of the summer league. But I I think Evan Mobley has like top five, top ten player potential in the league at this point, and I'm not ready to say that for Jabari Smith. I don't know who would be, um, but if you're looking at you know, maybe maybe I'm just off on what Jabari Smith's defensive value is going to be. I know there are a lot of people that really prioritize or view highly his his switchability. I just don't think he's ever going to be the the best defender, let alone a generational defender like Mobley is. And just even by even by default, there Mobley should should end up being the 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 better player. But but good question. I'm always I'm always for overreacting to summer league or for projecting on offense. Though I honestly don't. Like, I don't think it's as far away, by far and away, Jabari, as I, I think most people would answer that question. I, I think it's not even to say 
arguable, but you could say Jabari and be very decisive about it, and that's fine. But there's more to see from Evan Mobley on offense. And right now, they, or this past season, the Cavs didn't necessarily charge him with it. I wouldn't be surprised to see more of running stuff through him in the post, or we already know that he can sort of run fast breaks, but is he going to slow it down, run things from a face-up position as a table setter? I don't even know. Jabari Smith Jr. as a scorer, sure, can do that. I don't know if I trust him as a table setter there. So the, there's, to me, it feels like there's a a better than slight chance that Evan Mobley ends up being the better player on both ends of the floor than Jabari Smith Jr. Lil Microwave Taquito, fantastic name, asks, is Grant Williams the best 3 and D player of all time? I mean, the answer here is yes, obviously. Uh, but he was great in that role. And you don't really see sort of like pure fours or bigs in general um, or like fives play that role, that 3 and D role as much anymore. Or it's it's normally a two or a three or a guy who's defending four positions. And Grant Williams is at most a two position player. I'm very curious to see what he gets in an extension with the Celtics or in restricted free agency next year. But just to reinforce this, here is um, B-Ball Index has a three-point shot maker value and a defensive role versatility uh, metric. Here's every non-point guard in the league last year to have a positive value as a three-point shot maker and then match Williams's defensive role versatility score. Here's every non-point guard. Desmond Bain, Alec Burks, Josh Richardson, Nick Batum, Caleb Martin, PJ Tucker, and Bruce Brown. That's look, there's outliers there, uh, mostly just Alec Burks, even though I do think he's a very good shot maker. That's pretty good company to be in. And so Grant Williams is one of the more underrated players in the league right now. I don't know if he can be a primary big on his own in, you know, under or against substantial reps, but he is three and D, and that's that's an anomaly at the at the position or the type of role that he plays. And also we know that his shot making came around. I don't know that people appreciate just how it's the same thing with Kevon Mooney. Like they are so pliable on the defensive end. They can just switch across all over the place. And that's what both of their teams did with them. Paulito has two questions in 2022. Is it smarter to keep a young core or pull in LA and collect than trade for a star? Uh, he adds the Pelicans, Thunder, and Orlando Magic. Look, if you're in a market, I, this is the way I'll phrase it. I, I lean towards it's better to draft and start over. And I think we saw that even with the Spurs acknowledging they're in the middle and then you trade away DeJounte Murray rather than going after the double-down trade. A lot of that now is the market's going to dictate who's available. You can't just will a Carl Anthony Towns or a Kevin Durant uh, onto the chopping block. But you need even the even trades are risky because you need to be mentioned. Players, the players you want, a lot of the times are going to have a say in where they're going. Kevin Durant being example one, he's so far named two teams, just two teams. And so if you're not going to be on these short lists, that narrows your margin for error in these trades. Yeah, if you're New Orleans, you can go after the level of player like a CJ McCollum mid career because he's not just going to have his pick of the litter. If you're talking about top 20, let's say and above even top 25 now and above guys in the NBA, if you don't already have them or get them before their rookie scale contract is over. So Brandon would be a great example. They didn't draft him. LA actually did, but you got him before his second contract. It's really important to build your team through that route to me. If you're in Orlando, if you're in Orlando in Oklahoma city or, or the Pelicans. Now I'm not against the non glamor markets 
going after the bigger fish. And I think you can put Toronto is weird because there's such a like impassioned, huge basketball fan base there, but they're not traditionally mentioned among the flashiest free agency destinations. We saw Kawhi leave. I appreciate the aggression you show on the trade market there. You can absolutely make that move and they want a title. So it's fine. The cost of business there was just so low. You didn't have to give up either of your top th- two or three prospects at the time. You didn't have to give up OG or Siakam. So, and I don't, Van Fleet wasn't really a pl- prospect at that point. So you didn't have to give up two of your three top prospects if you had Pirtle as your third prospect there. And then the DeRozan contract, he was a really good player, but it wasn't considered like this. It was probably net neutral value at most. And if you lost Kawhi and the whole thing didn't pan out, you didn't win a title, you got to start over. So the the margin for error there, it was just different when you were looking at the context. It was just almost a no-lose situation for Toronto, knowing how stale that core had grown even if it was a tough decision to make when you're now making that move, whether you're in Orlando or the thunder or the Pelicans, I think was really the Kings. You could throw there too. Um, I think what's interesting here, people wanted Memphis, including myself advocated for them to go after these win now trades. Well, why shouldn't they get in on the Kevin Durant sweepstakes? You have to worry about them either asking for out in a way that other teams don't, if you're not on those short lists to begin with, that really increases the value of not just the draft, but if you're going to make the swing now trades, it's or the since it's not necessarily an immediate trade. If you're going to make a swing on the trade market, it's to get guys while they're still on their rookie scale deals. That way, you have maximum team control and the maximum time to sell them on your future. And the Carlton Towns and Devin Booker are perfect examples. And I, I don't even want to throw the Suns in there just because Phoenix is such a desirable market for players when they're being ran properly. So the Timberwolves, the fact that he wants to be there, um, that had to embolden them to go out and make that. Rudy Gobert trade in the first place, but you also probably don't make that trade if you don't already have Anthony Edwards, who you got through the draft. You got Carl Anthony Towns through the draft. And Rudy Gobert is probably the closest to a level of player where it's, oh, he might have a say in where he wants to go, or he's top 25 anyway, and we're still, you know, maybe we weren't on his initial list, but he also played a position where like you weren't going to have a list. People have viewed the four years, $170 million contract as an albatross. They don't view the money, for example, like Kevin Durant, even knowing that he might only be Kevin Durant for two more years or whatever. They don't view that as just a potential sunk cost or something that could blow up in, in your face. And so the players that you're most going to covet when they're in their later years, if you're not going to be on their shortlist, you need to be damn sure like Toronto was that this elevates you to contender status if not contender favorite status. So I do think it's smarter to build through the draft or just through acquiring players. If maybe you're at a point where you're in the middle, um, let's say what the Spurs just did. They didn't acquire this type of player, but you traded DeJounte Murray and you got an Onyeka Okungwu if that's who they prioritize. So prioritize the picks or the players still on their, their rookie scale. Palito also asked Jonathan Isaac's trade value. Uh, look, in all honesty, I have no fucking idea. He is... Uh, his contract now is more team-friendly because it's not guaranteed. It's only more team-friendly because he's missed so many games. He's guaranteed $17.4 million this coming year, $17.6 million in 23-24, and then fully non-guaranteed in 24-25. So you're essentially looking at he's guaranteed two years and $25 million. That's not like you want to take a swing if it blows up in your face. You, you could absolutely do that. You also have to judge that against, okay, Torres left ACL, suffered the right hamstring injury. They expect him to be ready for next year, I believe, still, but they still haven't given a timeline for his return since um, that hamstring setback. I don't know what you would give up for him. He's a defensive system unto himself when you watch him. He is really just like a blanket of coverages rolled into one, and there's value in that. I don't know what he is on offense. Uh, I 
there we never we haven't watched him in over two years for one, but there were never enough ball skills there. His jumper never fell at a consistent enough clip off the catch. I mean, for long enough for me to believe that there was the element like the standstill element there. I think assuming his explosiveness isn't the least bit compromised from these hamstring and ACL injuries, you could definitely use him in sort of a a conventional big man's role, have him screen and then dive because he could certainly finish that way. I mean, if you're playing him with a floor spacing five or even at the five and he can be positionless on defense, play him at the three for all I care. If there's all these shooters around you that can hold up, that would be a route that you could go. I don't know which teams are equipped to make that risk. I think you're looking at probably if, if I'm Orlando, just knowing I have Paolo Bancaro, Wendell Carter Jr. There, you did resign Mo Bamba. I don't think Orlando needs to go into uh, seller's mode, but if I was offered two like medium first round picks for him, I'd probably do it. If they're two, if it's a contender or just really like if it was a Phoenix level first round pick and that's it, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, if Phoenix came along and was offering salary filler and two first round picks and they're the second one's unprotected too, and now you're putting yourself in a position where let's say it was just 23 and then 25. So you're looking at the number 27 pick in 2023, but 2025, that's far enough away to it's like, all right, if they don't have Aiton on that roster, even if they trade for Kevin Durant, him and CB3 are going to have aged out of their primes by that point. I'm at, I'm there where I would consider it. Maybe you've stuck it out this long and you have the non-guarantees kicking in that you don't want to sell that low. I just That's probably what his value would be to me. And Orlando is also an interesting point because I'm even talking about them. I'm, so, I'm in love with some of the players on their team. I love Jalen Suggs, I think, more than the average person at this point. Franz Wagner was great. I'm still like, I'm still an RJ Hampton believer a little bit. Uh, Markel Fultz has been fine for them. Um, I'm probably like the most high. I don't know how you couldn't be on Paolo Bencaro after watching him in summer league. They have a nice understated base there. And even if, look, if Chimo Kiki just like develops any semblance of a consistent offensive presence, if they were, let's say someone in Discord mentioned this, would they be a Donovan Mitchell destination? In theory, yeah. Three years left on Mitchell's deal, you make that dice roll. I could picture them being a force immediately, but you know so little about a lot of your team now. Just can Wendell Carter Jr. follow up what he did last year? I think he will, just because I, I think the Bulls were misusing him a ton before he got to Orlando. We know Jalen Suggs will be better, but he's also only in year two. Uh, Franz Wagner is only entering year two. But like you could talk yourself into doing that. Does Donovan Mitchell want to stay beyond his current contract? Because those three years aren't enough. You need a larger window than that, or at least the the promise that there will be one or that he won't turn around and request a trade a year or two down the line when he's closer to free agency. That's what I meant in the previous question of, which was also asked by Paulito. The teams in those markets have to think uh, more thoroughly about that, which is why you wouldn't necessarily move Jonathan Isaac right now, because if that higher end defensive outcome is there, you trust that he'll have a set jumper and that he'll remain healthy. You want his current contract in full at 17.4 million per season over the next three seasons to guarantee it, that gives you a leg up on the competition. It's tough. And I wouldn't trade him at his lowest value, but if you had a team giving you, let's say it's an immediate first round pick, that you know, it's not going to be great, but there's a first round pick in 2025, maybe even later that is going to be loosely, if not unprotected, uh, I would, I would consider it. And that's just where his trade value is for me. This next question comes from Thomas Rodriguez. What are the chances Damian Lillard leaves Portland and how can the Miami heat acquire him? Damian Lillard's not going to be leaving Portland for at least a year now because he signed his extension, uh, which is, I mean, good for him. Uh, he is now signed on Portland 
in theory through 2026, 2027. I don't know if the final year on that is a player option, but we're not going to be dealing with his future until at least next summer. Um, if he does ask for out, and I don't know that he will. I mean, he signed this extension. It's also a boatload of money. It's like two years and 120 million. Why wouldn't you sign that extension is my, is my point because you could always ask for out later. With that in mind, do I think he finishes this contract in Portland? I'd probably bet against it, but they seem very committed just looking at what they did to retooling around him. So I, I'm not of the mind that this is just going to be something they hammer out in the next year. It could be, it could not. If the Heat want to acquire him, if they want to acquire Donovan Mitchell, uh, if they want to acquire Kevin Durant, if they want to acquire any other star, the path right there now is salary filler, whatever it takes. And it might take Kyle Lowry, depending on how much that player makes. Uh, but it's you put Tyler Hero and Nikola Jovic on the table, and then you max out the picks and swaps that you can get. Assuming they're, they can uh, um, you know make the 2025 pick with OKC, unprotect that. If they can give OKC something to facilitate it, you can give your 2023 first, 2027 first and 2029 first plus swaps galore. So 2024, 2026 and 2028. So it'd be three picks, three swaps. I'd still consider Jovic a pick. So let's say four first, three swaps and Tyler hero. That's the crux of your best offer. That's not, that's not nothing. If it's done, if that's what you offer for Donovan Mitchell and the heat apparently made a, a pitch or to the jazz for Donovan Mitchell, they deem the offer insufficient. That's, you know, we're talking about Jimmy Butler's on the older end. Kyle Lowry, maybe he's part of that deal, but for Donovan Mitchell, he wouldn't need to be. Uh, he's on the older end. You're giving them Kevin Durant or Donovan Mitchell and knowing they have Bam. That changes how you view their later picks either. That's a lot, though. I don't think Damian Lillard is going to be a, a target of the Heat, although with Kyle Lowry on an expiring contract next summer, if Damian Lillard did ask for out, that does become an intriguing destination just through ways in which you can build build offers there. I'm not ready to think about Dame uh, asking for out now that he signed the extension and just given the direction they were clearly headed in enter entering the off season. Zach asks, what is the percentage increase of double triple teams? Giannis sees without Middleton on the floor, Zach, I do not have access to that data that I think I'm as far as uh, that's second spectrum level shit that I think would be behind team walls. I can tell you though, with data that I do have access to Giannis was doubled on over one third of his regular season possessions. That is a lot. And the Bucks scored incredibly efficiently on those possessions in which he was double teamed. I imagine the percentage of possessions in which he double double teamed goes up uh, when Middleton is off the floor, just because you don't have the threat that level that Middleton uh, is to counteract there. You still have drew holiday. So maybe it's comparable, but if, if you're running Giannis centric lineups, you would want to double him more uh, like conceptually, if I'm a defense, you're going to want to double him less when he's playing with Drew and or Middleton than when he's not. This will be the final question. It's very quick. Deuce Hearts asked, what is the baseball equivalent? And he asked this to NBA math. It's at MLB underscore math. So if you like baseball, at MLB underscore math, at NBA underscore math as well. Follow just sports math in general. Adam, uh, the former co-host, still part of this podcast, um, collaborator, good friend. I love him, but Follow sports math uh, at sports math net. And then the parent handles there's, there's one for the NFL that's at QB underscore math one for the MLB at MLB underscore math one for the NHL at NHL underscore math. And there is one for PGA golf at PGA underscore math with that. And as always, thank you all for the questions. This is your first time listening. Please 
Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Smash the likes, comment for us on YouTube to help us break the algorithm and subscribe to us on YouTube. It helps us a ton grow this community and helps me continue the drive to put out so much content where it feels like we're doing three plus podcasts every week now. Appreciate every single one of you, as I always say. And we finish, like always, just in case you've never been here before, with a shout out to the one, the only, the ultimate building block that you would never trade or let go unless you're the next Frank Miller